Welcome back to Emerge. On this episode, I'm sharing a conversation that I had with John Verveke on the STOA about the ecology of practices that we've been exploring for the last two months at Willow, the Canadian branch of the Monastic Academy. I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, it's been well received by the folks who listen to it. I've had a lot of people reach out telling me that they were inspired and excited by what they heard. And if after listening to this episode, to this conversation, you'd like to learn more, I'll be releasing with this episode an interview with Layman Pascal going into some of the deeper aspects and philosophical grounding and affordances of the harmonization model that we use at Willow. And we're also running a four-week Intro to Harmonization online course, and we still have spots open for it. So if you're listening to this upon the time of release, uh, you can join me and Seishin and a group of people as we explore this uh, ecology of practices, this way of working. This will be an introduction to all of the things that you'll hear us talk about in this conversation. And so you can find a link to that in the show description. We're also, through Willow, offering a four-week introduction to the Jade Method, which is one of the primary meditation methods that we use at the Monastic Academy. That will also be offered. Um, That's also a month-long training. So please go ahead and check those out if you feel called to participate. You can do both. You can do one. Um, And I hope that this conversation is valuable to you. One of the things that I neglected to say in this interview that I wish I had said is that if this conversation sparks you, if it calls to you, consider if it's possible that your vocation is to help birth a network of wisdom institutions in our culture. The Monastic Academy is looking for people for whom that might be the case. We need more leaders, we need more teachers, we need more people who are willing to dedicate some portion of their lives to realizing this vision of a kind of cultural education, educational renaissance of uh, wisdom training. So if that's you, you can reach out to me, you can reach out to the Monastic Academy. Uh, We want to talk to you, we want to work with you, uh, we want to see if it's a good fit. And so uh, with all that being said, I hope you enjoy uh, this crossover episode of the Stoa, uh, Stoa session released on the Emerge podcast stream. Enjoy. Welcome to the STOA. Uh, today we have some friends of the STOA uh, with us today. 
We have uh, Seishin Yasna from the Willow Monastic Academy, uh, Daniel Thornson from the um, Emerge podcast, also from the Monastic Academy, and our good friend John Verveke. Uh, and uh, John and Seishin uh, and I used to belong to um, a bi-weekly circling group in Toronto, so it's good to have a portion of the gang back here at the, at the STOA. Um, and so Seishin started this thing called the Willow Monastic Academy, and it's a training center near a couple hours away from Toronto dedicated to developing the capacities of the human mind. Uh, they engage in rigorous mental, ethical, and interpersonal practices uh, grounded in uh, the Buddhist tradition. Um, and they've been featured on the Stoa many times before. And today's session is a launch of a series and a collaboration between Monastic Academy and the Stoa, um, and the Willow Monastic Academy, I should say. And today's session is harmonizing to emerge uh, a new ecology of practices, uh, and we have a, a fun, uh, fun array of uh, activities for for you today. Uh, and, and then eventually, John, uh, Daniel, and Station will have a conversation. And today is ninety minutes in total. Um, and we'll be talking about the, the kind of the ecology of practices that the Monastic Academy, the Willow Branch, is working on. And then on Monday, there's going to be a six day uh, wake up challenge in chant meditation. I think it's at five a.m. Eastern time. I'll be there at least for the first session. Um, and then we're going to get like a, an embodied taste of it uh, here at the, the STOA. And then I'll be visiting the STOA next weekend uh, for a session called Harmonizing to Emerge, uh, a Stoic at a Monastic Academy. And uh, we'll talk about my experience of being at the Monastic Academy. So uh, Seishin Yazan will be talking in a moment, but right now I'm going to take uh, Nathan uh, and he's going to lead us through uh, an exercise. Thank you, Nathan. That was lovely. Um... So, hello everyone. Uh, I'm Seishin or Yasna, and I run um, the Canadian branch of the Monastic Academy for the Preservation of Life on Earth, Willow. Uh, and I know that many of you are familiar with the work that we do, um, but I'll just kind of very quickly say that we're a modern uh, monastic institution. So, you know, not a, a traditional monastery, but heavily informed by monasticism and particularly Buddhist monasticism. And we train in a variety of practices, some ancient and some modern, all of which are intended to lead uh, to profound transformation and growth uh, so that we can become people who are more capable of facing some of the world's most dire problems. Uh, so the Monastic Academy in Vermont, which is our headquarters location, uh, has been around for about a decade. And uh, during that time, they've been working on this problem of developing an ecology of practices for this type of transformation and really looking at the best ways to present it, to teach it to newcomers in a way that will have a really lasting impact. Uh, so Willow is a new center. We've been officially, we've been around for about a year. Uh, which presents a really good opportunity for training newcomers. Um, so Daniel has been, over the past year, uh, or the past life, depending on how you look at it, uh, kind of developing a conceptual framework for some of these practices. And uh, so we decided to partner together. Um, Daniel and I are both teachers in the Monastic Academy system. Um, so we partnered to run a kind of three-month experiment uh, at Willow, where we would bring a small group of people together and just teach them these practices from scratch, introduce this framework that he's created, and uh, live and train together for three months and see where it goes. Um, and we're about two months into those three months, and it's just been really wonderful, um, kind of blown away by the group and by everything that's uh, that's been happening here. Um, so 
I'm very excited uh, to have this conversation and to talk with everyone. Uh, and um, I think at that point, I can just pass it off to you and you can share a little bit about the model and what we'll be talking about. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Sation. <clears throat> um, well, the first thing I want to say is just what a meaningful pleasure it is to be in this conversation and especially in this conversation with you, John. Um, you know, you came on my podcast and I think, you know, Peter sent me your name and I think like linked me to the very first episode of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, like before it had even come out because he, he knew it was going to be great. And um, it was at a time in my life when I was making the decision to come back to the Monastic Academy in Vermont. And your work along with uh, Zach Stein's recent book, uh, Education in a Time Between Worlds, kind of like really clarified that decision for me. Um, and so it's, it's just uh, feels really significant to me that, that to be in conversation with you about this. Um, so I'll, I'll describe a little bit the model and the kind of um, origins of the model and framework that we're exploring here at Willow. As Seishin said, the Monastic Academy in Vermont is about a 10-year-old institution. And the way that I like to frame its mission is that it's um, an inquiry into what does a wisdom institution need to be to meet the demands of a planetary crisis in the context of Western civilization. And it's sort of like been experimenting and iterating. And uh, over those 10 years, we've, you know, starting with something like a Genesis system that was close to Rinzai Zen, the founder of the Monastic Academy, Soryu Forall, uh, primarily trained in Japan, in Rinzai Zen tradition, but also in other monastic traditions, um, like the Ambedkar tradition in India, uh, and spending a little bit of time in the Tibetan tradition, but primarily it's Rinzai Zen, but also there was a little bit of um, Shinzen Young sprinkled on top of it, which was, uh, if you don't know Shinzen, he's an incredible teacher. He's been on the Stoa, um, and he's done a lot of work to kind of modernize and um, make palatable the world mystical traditions to the Western mind. Um, and so we started with this Genesis system and over the last decade, we've seen all the ways that it didn't quite meet the needs of people who were coming into the training space. Um, for instance, people now, I think perhaps more so than, you know, in Japanese history are coming in with a tremendous amount of developmental trauma that in some cases meditation can help resolve and move through, but in other cases, it's actually not the right tool. Or another example is people come in and they have no idea how to have a good relationship with other human beings. They just like have never learned the skill set and the capacity to like be intimate and like trust another person. Um, or, and this is something that I think it's probably the most tragic when I consider it is that people come in and they don't actually like believe that there's such a thing as goodness. They don't believe there's such a thing as goodness, which in, in our system, that's like uh, one of the premises of right view, right? That there is such a thing as goodness. There is such a thing as beauty and meaning. 
And many people come into the training and don't have the sense that those things are uh, real, that they're not, there is no such thing as good. Um, and so we've had to learn how to teach ethics and teach how to engage with these questions of what is good, what is the good. Uh, and so we've been kind of like uh, bricolaging new practices and techniques into the headquarters center in Vermont, like circling or different emotional healing techniques like uh, internal family systems or the biomotive framework um, or different kind of like peer coaching protocols and things like that. But because there was a sufficient amount of inertia in that system, we felt that it would be really beneficial to kind of like create this temporary uh, experimental space that is the Willow three-month intensive where we could kind of represent the whole kind of ecology of practices in a more coherent way uh, to see what that would do, what that would open up and what that would afford. Um, and so that's kind of like the, the context out of which this curriculum arose. And I'll, I'll give a high level overview of the curriculum itself now. Um, so the, the kind of like super ordinate organizing principle or value of the curriculum is harmony. The point of the curriculum, the point of the training in the context of the curriculum we're using at Willow is to become, and I, I still haven't found a better term for this, I think it's a little bit like silly, but to become an omni-harmonizing agent. Yeah, so that you can step into any system, any relationship, any context, and your participation in that bends it towards harmony. It, it, it harmonizes that system or those systems that you're participating with. In this way of looking, you know, if we look back at at least the kind of archetypal vision of somebody like the Buddha, we'd say that he is like the, the highest level omni-harmonic agent that we maybe know of in history. He, every action he took, we might imagine at least archetypally, was in harmony with certainly you know, his body mind, the, the body minds of the people around him, past, present, future. It was all of a piece with the whole. And so this idea of harmony, you know, I, I don't want to, wouldn't want to define it too precisely because I think that can kind of like suck a little bit of the magic out. But um, uh, some uh, layman Pascal who also kind of is developing a similar framework of spiritual practice as harmonization defined it to me as a quality of just hanging togetherness, like a sort of appropriate relatedness in the various systems that are being participated in. And so in my way of looking, this could describe any spiritual practice that one would do. You could kind of frame it as a method of harmonizing some or one or more systems. Uh, in this training, we're focusing on five aspects that we are practicing to bring into harmony. Um, so I'll describe those along with the practices we do. And then at that point, I think maybe John, we can kind of just, and, and anybody, we can just kind of jam and, and talk. Um, so the five aspects that we work with here right now are um, the first aspect is energy or energy body. Uh, the second aspect is 
um, uh, the psyche or psycho-emotional life. The third is relationships. The fourth is, is ethics. And the fifth is perception. And so now I'll describe a little bit more detail what each of those mean for us. Um, so the first energy um, is really referring to this experience that you can have actually relatively easily, this perception of your body as a field of energy. Yeah, so if you um, kind of tune into your body in the right way, you'll, it'll be revealed to you as a kind of field of flow and vibrations and vividness and tones. This is what, in, uh, what I learned from Rob Berbea, a Dharma teacher uh, who recently passed away, who taught at Gaia House in the UK, uh, is called the energy body. We might call that the energy body. And so we practice in order to bring this energy body into harmony preferably into a kind of superabundant harmony, uh, which we might define as a, a jhana states, deep absorption states of meditation. These could be considered to be a sort of superabundance of energetic harmony within the body. This also would include training in things like exercise or movement protocols, nutri like nutrition, what you eat, how you sleep. All of this contributes to kind of creating a basis of vital energy to bring into the practice. But it's also a practice of kind of sensitizing yourself to this way of knowing, um, because as you know, maybe we'll explore, each of these aspects actually circles back on every other aspect so that you can learn to be ethical from the, the energy body. Your energy body actually has a kind of implicit ethics to it, which you can learn to listen to and be guided by. The, and, and so for that um, aspect, we mostly do uh, seated meditation, samadhi practice, shamatha practice, cultivating this sense of calm abiding and peace uh, within the energy body. The second aspect is um, the psyche. We're working to harmonize the psyche, which um, interestingly, if you look on the internal family systems website, they say that the purpose of their system is to harmonize the psyche. That's like the goal or objective of that whole approach to um, understanding the mind. And I consider the internal family systems framework to be a, just a very robust kind of meta model of understanding the psyche in order so that we can, on one hand, um, bring it into some kind of initial harmony, work through our stuck emotional patterns and traumas and so on. But then furthermore, uh, included within the aspect of the psyche, the whole journey of ensoulment and soul making going beyond merely like getting to normal and functional, but into kind of this uh, more uh, sacred art of ensoulment uh, that's included within this aspect. The third is relationships. This is just like how to get along with other humans, uh, which, you know, ends up being one of the most critical components of the, monastic training environment is just that you're you're surrounded by people who you didn't choose to be with and you can't get away from them unless you break your commitment and you have to just work through that and so um you know some of that practice just happens as a result of moving through the day but we also do practice uh, a lot of circling um throughout the days we do circling retreats and um that's a wonderful practice of kind of learning how to be in harmony with others uh the fourth is fourth aspect is ethics. 
there's a lot that could be said about this. This is something that I'm extremely passionate about learning how we can actually teach ethics. I think this is like, in a sense, the leverage point in terms of transformative education. We need how to, we need to learn how to turn people on to ethics, how to invite them and inspire them into uh, caring about ethics and living a deeply ethical life. And so the way that I frame it, and we can talk about this more if it's interesting, is that there are two questions, two primary questions within the training of ethics. The first question is, what is worth loving? What is actually worth loving? And then the second question is, how do I bring my life, my behavior to accord with that which is worth loving? How do I do that? Uh, in a sense, one way of framing the ethics in terms of the harmony models, we're attempting to harmonize the realm of uh, is with the realm of ought. And then the fifth aspect is perception. And this is where like classical awakening training would live. We're trying to uh, cure ourselves of the fundamental disharmony of the apparent subject-object divide. Um, but this also would include things just like releasing clinging and learning how to create less dissonance in the realm of perception. Um, oh, I, I forgot to say that within the ethics training, we're, it's still very experimental, but we're pulling a lot from Joe Edelman's human systems framework, as well as uh, Rob Berbea, uh, Sorry Foral, and uh, Nikolai Hartman, a kind of... Uh, 20th century virtue ethicist. And then with the perception training, uh, mostly inspired by Rob Berbea, but you know, we're pretty ecumenical about how to break through delusion in that aspect, uh, whatever works. Um, and so there's a lot more I could say about like the model and it's like modularity and whether it's kind of adequate to resolve the perennial problems. We actually tried, John, to map the perennial problems onto the different aspects, and I think we did a pretty good job. Uh, inadvertently, like we didn't plan it like that, but it seems like this ecology practice just grew naturally, probably in response to the perennial problems that were presenting themselves when people came to Vermont. Um, so there's a lot of different directions that might be fun to explore. Um, but maybe that's enough from me for now, and I'll just kind of like throw the ball into the middle of the space. I'd just like to thank uh, Daniel for what he said uh, about my work. Um, and, uh, very appreciative of him saying that. Um, it's um, it's very gratifying and encouraging uh, to see people making use of my work to make a new, new, new ways of being possible because that's ultimately what I wanted to come of, from my work. And um, so I'm just very grateful for that. I wanted to say thank you. And, uh, it's always great to see you, Zesha. It's really wonderful to see you again. And uh, I, 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 I think you know, but uh, the uh, discussion we recorded together about the Willow Academy for Voices of the Community was very well received. Mm -hmm. So I want to thank you for that. 
Thank you very much. And then um, before I forget, I want to thank uh, my beloved brother, Peter, who is always here, um, uh, making a way and a place for people and always making me feel welcome when I'm here. And uh, I, I want to do everything I can to continue to encourage him to do what he's doing. Uh, so I just wanted to, uh, I just wanted to say thank you in these ways uh, to all of you. Uh, I hope that uh, we can get into some deep and delicious discussion about your model because um, it's very much, uh, and as you as you are no doubt aware, it's very much the kind of thing I'm proposing we need to do. You know, the ecology of practices, counterbalance, organize touching many of the important dimensions of development, um, that although it has a religious framework in its heritage and its legacy, it can nevertheless be pursued uh, by people who are coming out of a secular orientation, uh, I, I think, right? And so, um, and in that way, and I hope you take this as a compliment, not, a, not in any way an insult, um, I, I see it as a piece of what I talk about when I'm proposing um, that we could constellate such communities together in a religion that's not a religion. And so um, there's just so much here uh, that I would like to, to talk about, but I don't want to trespass on uh, any plan of action Peter has organized for us. So uh, I, I'll turn things back to him. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you and, and express uh, my appreciation and all the meanings of that word uh, for being here. Well, well said and beautifully said, John. Um, there's there's zero plan of action on my end. Uh, uh, so, Daniel, maybe if people feel called to ask a question or do a share, they can put something in the chat or maybe raise their hand. And in the meantime, I'm curious to see an exchange between uh, John, you and Station. Yeah, one thing that kind of came to mind from what John just shared is actually around the modularity of the framework. And if you you might want to go into that a little bit because it actually is created such that it doesn't have to have necessarily a religious basis at all. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So this is really critical actually. And, um, uh, you know, the, the harmony framework is designed and this is Lehman Pascal's term to be, uh, ontologically agnostic, right? We are trying to create something that does not require any kind of buy-in to doctrine or dogma in order to participate in it. Um, even though we, this arose out of the Buddhist tradition, um, we want to, in the mission of Maple Monastic Academies, to create a kind of cultural renaissance of wisdom institutions. And we need to create some kind of framing for how people might be invited in to engage in that that isn't dependent on buying into things like reincarnation or karma. And so instead, we focus on this idea of harmony uh, because. I have a sense that it's just um, kind of appealing in a way. It, 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 it certainly calls to me, and I think it, it calls to a lot of folks. Um, uh, but yeah, and, and then the, the nice thing about the uh, ontological neutrality is that then you can play with ontology as a practice, um, right? So you're not restricted to a singular, singular ontology. You can experiment with um, that too. Uh, but the idea is also that it's modular in that you could create a center perhaps that sought to harmonize with the local community, you know, that that was the practice that they wanted to do was to bring the center and the people around it that weren't in the training into some kind of harmony. Um, and so there are many different aspects that you can harmonize. These, these five that we found are just what we think are like 
the most adequate uh, for a robust transformation. So, so um, I'm very interested in um, how you centered on these five. What was sort of the uh, criteria you were using for selection? Um, there's, there, I mean, there's several ones that could be considered. Um, you could, for example, you could consider design features. Um, you might say these practices have you know, different sets of strengths and weaknesses, and by putting in them into relation, they'll counterbalance each other. Now, that's kind of a design uh, criterion. You could have a developmental criterion and saying, you know, this practice scaffolds that practice or makes that possible, or these skills are necessary for those skills. Um, you could also have uh, you know, a, a principle that has something to do with uh, various ideas about um, different developmental processes or faculties. You know, this process taps into attention, so this practice taps into attention, this taps into memory, uh, this taps into metacognition. And so for me, that's at least three potential uh, dimensions along which you could uh, make um, you know, uh, judgments, selections as to uh, what, which uh, uh, practices would go into your ecology and also how you would dynamically organize the ecology so that the various practices play off against each other. So I, I'm not saying you have to limit yourself to them. I was giving them as examples of things I reflect on when I'm trying to understand how people can or perhaps should try and uh, curate uh, ecologies of practices. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think in our case, a lot of this just kind of evolved out of the experiment that we were running in Vermont. Over the last decade, um, people, like I said, came with particular kinds of suffering that weren't adequately addressed by the practices. And we noticed certain gaps in the minds that were coming to the training. Like, I, I expect they didn't have to teach that there is such a thing as goodness, like in you know pre-modern Japan, it was just sort of woven into the culture in a way. It was unquestioned or something. I'm not sure, but in any case, people come in nowadays and they do need to learn that. And so we started to evolve um, those kinds of practices. All, and the other the other piece that um, you said, like the kind of developmental selection criteria, uh, the you know there you can. Um, endeavor to transform in a lot of ways, of course. And the purpose of our lineage is to create trustworthy human beings. Yes. Trustworthy human beings. That means that um, you know, one way of defining this is that a trustworthy human being can be given power and you can trust that they will use it for the well-being of life. And so that's a certain kind of developmental objective, which I think also constrained like um, how we chose practices. Yeah. See, so, so, and I think you alluded to that earlier when you said you were, you invoked Levi Strauss's uh, notion of bricolage, um, mm. or how you, how you put it together. So I'm wondering then, um, so I would have a question, uh, sort of the two parts of me, uh, how would they would talk together, is mm. how the bricolage would enter into discussion with um, the science uh, that, of course, there's a lot of science around development, transformation. I, I, I'm part of that community too. And one of the things that I've been concerned with is trying to get 
and I'll, I will uh, no pun intended. I want to get the university and the monastery and the, and the monastery back together again. Mm. Um, they've been separated, and that was one of uh, one of the things that I think has really um, launched us into uh, the meaning crisis. And so I'm wondering if it, what's the consideration about, and maybe you haven't yet, and that's not that's not any kind of uh, moral flaw, just. Yeah, it's how how to put the bricolage, and because this was Levi Strauss's point too. How do you how do you put the bricolage in proper discourse with the science so that they can mutually inform and constrain each other, and we can begin to wed them back together so that the knowledge project and the wisdom project are talking to mm -hmm. each other again in a deep fashion. I mean, that's the dream. That's the dream, right? Like, and I think you need you need like a, a network of training centers that are experimenting and sharing, yes. Yes. And competing and collaborating in order to really do that work. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, I have a sense that generally, when people, or one story I have is that generally now, when science tries to interface with like our training, science just wants to say, "No, you're doing it wrong," and they mm -hmm. don't actually trust the wisdom of the lived experience of somebody like Soryu, right? right. can actually more adequately say what works and what doesn't than we have the capacity to with our science right now, at least the one, the science that I'm currently familiar with. And so like, how do we balance those? Cause it tends to be the case that I think scientists disregard that, that personal depth of practice well perhaps not all scientists but uh but yeah yeah your point is well said i mean uh, I, i'm proposing um and i know uh i was invited for this weekend but, I, but just some more but i'm proposing that at some point i might be able to do uh like a participant observation kind of thing uh where i come and i participate and i participate authentically honestly sincerely but I also am allowed to observe, ask questions, take notes, and try and start that bridging process. Um, because um, I think that um, for me, um, if this is going to work, it has to be able to talk to people. That, uh, because whether people are explicitly scientific or scientifically oriented, they, and this is Heidegger's great point, we're all enmeshed in the scientific worldview and, and the very the technology that we're relying on right now it has a terrific power to shape our consciousness and cognition into a scientific worldview in ways in which we're not even very familiar. And so um, we need we need to build that bridge. And um, it, you know, if 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 you would like, um, I would like to try. I mean, very much like what I was trying to do when we were doing the circling practice. Mm -hmm. I came into there, and it's had a profound influence on me and impact. I got to work with Guy and with Chris and all kinds of amazing stuff's coming out. But I was also there trying to understand the science and Taylor and I are trying to work on that together. And there's, there's so I would like at some point to do that uh, with your community, because I think that's something that um, is needed. And, and I take your point very well. You want somebody who's both a sincere practitioner and a sincere scientist. Uh, to do that work for you. So I'd like to offer my services uh, towards addressing the problem that I raised. Yeah. I mean, we, I, 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 uh, yes. I mean, I, we would love that. I, I would love that. I think I would learn a lot. You would learn a lot. We would learn a lot. I think it would be a benefit to the world. There's, there's, that's a good thing with a capital G in my world.
thank you for that. And uh, uh, you touched me with your reception. That was very, very quite wonderful. Uh, and, and so I'm wondering then um, how, like, so there's these different, so another question that comes to my mind is, um, and, and this is something that I'm also working with, you know, there's the STOA and then there's, I, I'm also trying to build an ecology of practices where, you know, I've got Guy Senstock and Christopher Mastropietro and I, we've done, we've now done our first full weekend workshop and we take people through a course of meditation practices, circling practices, philosophical fellowship, and then dialectic into dialogos. We had an amazing response. I don't have any, some of you, I think might have been there. The feedback has been very powerful. Yes, Zell, I saw you. Um, and we're, we're going to do more on that. Uh, and, and on the theoretical end, I'm doing work. I've, I've just submitted a book chapter for a new a Routledge anthology on the philosophy of meditation that's coming out. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't want to say everybody should do that program, but I'm offering it, right? Because uh, I, when I use this term dialogos, for example, I mean it to mean a family of things. What's happening at the STOA, you know, where, where people are doing ecologies of practices in which genuine dialogos dialogue is playing a central role. You're obviously doing that too with circling and the ethical practices that you're talking about. So what, what, I, what I'm trying to say, sorry, this is long-winded, but I'm trying to get the, the, the pieces out here because this is a problem I'm also wrestling with. How do we get the family together um, so that we can say, we all respect and support which everybody else is doing, uh, but nevertheless, we're offering this, they're offering that, and we're going to try and see how we overlap, coordinate, respond, uh, because again, uh, I think that's, if you'll allow me uh, to be a little bit overly philosophical, there's kind of a meta ecology of practices, right. Uh, uh, that is needed if we're going to, uh, do the scaling of this for the cultural transformation that's at the, you know, it's the telos of your project and it's also the telos of my project. And I know it's the telos of Peter's project, um, so did that question even make sense? I was so sort of fumbling, but. No, no, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe if, I'll stay a little bit, maybe Station, if you want to say anything, but um, I, I listened to your conversation with um, Forrest Landry. Oh, yes. Make it yeah. very much to be the case, because I believe what he says typically, because it seems to come from a lot of thinking about it, that that problem that you're talking about now is, as harder, harder than the construction of the ecology in the first place. And I just, I feel humbled in the face of that challenge. Mm -hmm. And yet I also know how critical it is to somehow navigate our way towards its realization. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but probably having conversations like this feels like in the right direction. I don't, I, but I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, I, I'm in the same position, and I, and I hope it's, it, I mean, part of it's ignorance and stupidity. Part of it, I hope, is also Socratic humility, uh, that I'm trying to figure out what it looks like. I do have the hope that this weird new medium that somehow blends, you know, um, you know verbal discourse with the permanence of writing, right, it's, it's right. something that would just, you know, have shaken Plato to the core because it, it cuts across the divide, um, might allow us... Um, to, you know, carry on, you know, the, the meta dialogue, the dialogue between the dialogues that can help that go. That's why I, I, I am trying to talk to people like Forrest and other people, because I'm trying to figure out how can we do this without doing the feudal Iron Age hierarchy answer, because that has been our answer every other bloody time, right? You know how we do this? 
we build hierarchies and and then what we do is we create a feudal structure where everybody's in allegiance to the level above them and that's how we all work and i you know i work in the university of toronto which is very much a feudal iron age hierarchy in terms of its bureaucracy um and so and i love being at the university of toronto so i'm allowed to say that um and so i don't and i, I take very seriously jordan hall's point that another friend of the stoa that um though that that technology for distributed cognition is not well designed for the accelerating complexification of our, our of our society and the acceleration of the meta crisis that we're facing those yeah. iron age hierarchies are not the way to constellate communities into cultures and into institutions uh, for solving that problem so i'm trying to figure out maybe bricolage is what's happening right now what what do we do because like, i want you your group i want willow and i want the stoa and i want my discord community and i want race uh evolve move play and thomas and elizabeth and, mm -hmm. and taylor and right i want i want them all because they are right and i don't want to do what families can do they can fall into the narcissism of small differences and right and you know you watch the protestant church in history just destroy itself that way like so i i'm i'm, I'm trying to get a sense of the problem and i'm talking too much but i like it's i want to i want to i want people to start really thinking about it and talking about it and reflecting on it and sharing what is it like what is that going to look like so that's why i asked you i wanted to know uh, i mean i'm glad that you're humbled by it because i think that's the right attitude and, and so if like Within the context of you being properly humble, and, and, and I appreciate that, and we're all sort of groping, do you have any, any initial intuitions or sense or preliminary metaphors, right? Shots in the dark are welcome right now when there's an encroaching <laughs> darkness, right? Like, so, like, like I, I just want anything to be, it's almost like at the beginning of a platonic dialogue. What can we do to get the converse, anything that will just get the conversation going? Mm. Yeah, I mean, a thing that is really exciting for me about this is that, uh, you know, within the Monastic Academy, we've been talking about creating you know, 500 centers around the world of, right. of monasteries, and it kind of seems like that's actually emergently happening, sort of other people are doing these other things, and that actually, for some reason, it's already happening. Mm -hmm. um, like there, is, there is a movement and this, like, it might not end up being a bunch of monasteries, it's just like these different centers that do a bunch of different things. Um, I don't really have, like, you know what is the way to do that? I just I just have the perception that somehow this is actually happening. <laughs> it is, it is, and I think it's one of the, for me, it's one of the positive, responsible responses to the meaning crisis. Um, and I think it's very much analogous to my mind of what was happening towards the end of antiquity. When you have all these different Christian communities, and then then they initially they network together, and make a new culture, but then it does develop into the hierarchy well like one thing i'd like to do and now that covid's coming to an end and, and uh, you know i would like us all to be involved in this and other people one thing we might want to do is hold initially i know that i don't mean this in an academic sense but something like it a conference where we get mm -hmm. where we, where we get community builders who are doing this together and we do what conferences originally were supposed to do we people you know present ideas we talk we discuss uh, we workshop and we try and create um, the initial network 
of connections and communication that would start to address the problem that I've raised. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so, so two things come to mind too, John. I think um, the two areas that I look at when thinking about this with the proper amount of humility is one, like shared ontological commitments and shared values. Mm-hmm. Like, can we actually articulate those in a way that there's some kind of membrane yeah. that will provide or afford for a certain kind of coherence within the network? Um, and then the other is the whole territory. I was just talking to a friend about this, the whole territory of distributed autonomous organizations or yes. self-organizing collective intelligences as Jordan talks about, like that is just a whole Cambrian explosion right now. And we're just developing these digital protocols for a new forms of coordination that hopefully something in there will just kind of pop out and be accessible to this emergent network. And then we'll be able to start to coordinate in new ways. But a conference sounds dope too. <laughs> well, first, uh, thanks. I think we should do that. Um, and um, so I, that's a, that's sort of a, something I think we should start planning soon and getting mm-hmm. all the potential people involved. Rafe Kelly's had some experience with doing that with the sort of network around the mindful embodiment communities. Mm-hmm. And, he, he, and so he, uh, and I know Rafe would be very interested in this. Yeah, and what you said about distributed cognition, I mean, I, I've published a couple papers with Dan Shep, and I just found out today we're going to get the third one published, in which we've done extended sort of philosophical case study of, um, for various reasons, of, this, of the NASA scientists moving the rovers around on Mars, mm. why that involves all this. Pers- they have to go through tremendous procedural and especially perspectival and participatory transformation in order to be able to do this properly. It's really just a powerful study. But, and, and so all of that cognitive science and phenomenology is very important. But the other thing we're doing is we're trying to figure out the distributed cognition because it's a network of scientists. And what they've done is they've created structures that do not are not hierarchical and they're fluid and dynamic and they're constantly self-organizing in order to afford the transformations that are needed in order to undertake this bizarre, you know, new task with all kinds of complexities and unknowns. And so um, I, I, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to grok that and, and with Dan's tremendous help and see if there are lessons we can learn, and, you know, and we got earlier lessons from Hutchins' work on distributed cognition, like how all the crew members work together to steer a, a ship, a navigator ship. And like, there's a, so again, like you said, there's, there's now emerging science around this right on the edge of things mm-hmm. uh, that might give us some lessons that we could, you know, propose top down and see if they uh, accord with the bottom up stuff that's emerging already in these communities. It's so fascinating. I mean, what came to mind as you were speaking is, um, you know, I do feel very inspired by Forrest's clarity, Forrest Landry's yes. clarity, all this, yes. and some possibility of almost like weaving ontology and axiomatic commitments into the structure of a digital coordination system, such yes. that it's sculpted you as you voluntarily participated with it, knowing that it was sculpting you and opting into that, willingly opting into that kind of transformation. Uh, knowing that it was created by trustworthy people and hopefully that it functioned, you know? 
Yeah, uh, well, and I think you're right. I mean, so the virtue epistemology and the virtue ethics have to be more properly integrated and put together. Um, that's another project I'm working on. Yeah, and uh, and the discussion with Forrest, which was the third of our discussions, um, was uh, very powerful uh, because uh, I think we exemplified the real potential of a convergence from you know initially very different positions towards uh, 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 the possibility of uh, a shared um, ontology, um, and so. The, the way for me, I want to understand, and this is my model for this is platonic, the way that project of converging um, meshes with Dialogos as a project of transformation, how the convergence mm-hmm. projects and the transformation projects can be wedded together so that they're mutually disclosing and mutually affording, so that the processes by which people are individually and collectively going through self-transformation are integrated with the processes by which we are together um, converging on, um, you know, a shared ontological axioma, uh, axiological ontological framework. Yeah, uh, that that because that was that's the core of the whole Platonic corpus and trying to understand. And, and I'm not saying we should be Platonists or go back, but that's a good. It's it's a model. It's the best historical model we have that we can consult and dialogue with. And that's why you know Peter even calls this the Stoa. That there's mm-hmm. that you know the understanding that there's models from the past. That we should be have, uh, perhaps uh, uh, partake in. It. Uh, and so I, I, I'm really interested in, and you've said a lot of those things that really pointed on that about how can we get those two. Should say more. In fact, I want I want you to say more about how the way you're doing this in in, in layman's sense of ontological agnosticism, because his agnosticism is not the agnosticism of like AJ Air or something like that. Because layman talks about ontology more than anybody else I know in a lot of ways. And right. And he's willing uh, to talk very metaphysically. I know because, you know, just did another uh, uh, video with and he's part of it. And so and you said this idea and it really intrigued me. Serious play. You can play with ontologies. So how can we get people to do the serious play of transformation and seriously playing with ontologies in a way that, right, uh, they mutually support each other and, right, do what we're talking about here. Help us do the network. I, I'm, I'm talking too much, but this is very exciting. It's no, very it's exciting. Really, I mean, it, it's def- I mean, it's really exciting. It's kind of blowing my mind a little bit. The idea that, like, in the... Um, through the training that we're in which we're endeavoring to become more trustworthy people, we're somehow also almost like as an off gas creating a trustworthy system. Yes. Yes. And they mutually afford each other to deeper and deeper degrees. Like because, that. Because, that's cool. Well, well, I mean, well, well sorry, <laughs> I interrupted. I, 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 that was rude. I apologize. Well, what, what no, I just no. wanted to say, like, because I think the project of becoming trustworthy people, I mean, this is an Ericksonian point. It's, you can't separate it from the project, the project of being able to trust the world again. And I think that for me, that's the, that's the project of learning to fall in love with being again, uh, because at a deep level, and, and of course, people have all kinds of, and I'm not trivializing or back, but I just want to acknowledge people have all kinds of idiosyncratic trauma they're coming in with and, and issues and, and, and self-destructive behavior. But there's also a general thing about that we as a culture have lost the ability to love being, I would argue. And when you can't love something, you can't trust it. I mean, that's just, I'm going to just put that out as, 
you know, a, 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 a almost axiomatic proposition. And so I'm, 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 and this, I'm wondering the degree to which we coordinate becoming trustworthy people with getting people to, right, to be able to trust reality again. And I don't, and I mean in the sense of being able to fall in love with being in a profound way. The, re the reason I bring that up is because it, it, and this is not advertising, maybe it is, but it's not meant to be, right? When, when we take people through the program, like that, that, that pedagogical program, right? Where people, they start with a, a meditative practice, then they do a contemplative practice, then circling, then philosophical fellowship, and then dialectic into the logos. And then when they're doing it, when they're starting to happen, and, 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 and this has happened also when I've been circling, but I noticed mm -hmm. that people initially, they're, they're awakened to, I can be intimate with other people. And, mm -hmm. and, 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 they, and they discover a kind of intimacy that they weren't aware of. And that's simultaneously a new intimacy with aspects of themselves. And that's happening. And then, and then, then, and then there can be, then there's another stage. Give me charity on that. I don't mean that very, but right where they start to get intimate with the we, like the, the geist, the, right, the, right, the we space. And then what happens, and it's something we've tried to foreground into the dialectic practice, is that people then sometimes go from the first intimacy to the second intimacy into a third intimacy, where they start to feel like they're getting in touch with reality, but not in just an intellectual fashion, that they're coupling to it, they're falling in love with it, they're, 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 they're sensing a realness or a depth that they haven't sensed before. And, and so for me, I think uh, what I'm saying is that, that end pole, whatever, right? This pole is where people are becoming trustworthy, and this pole is when they're starting to trust the world again. Did that make any sense? When I, when it I, does. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Sorry, I got excited. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think um, a couple of things that struck me is that a lot of what you said kind of lands in certain places in the model that we've been working with. Um, okay. And in particular, when you said, how do we get people to love being again, or I think you said something like that. Um, yeah. What that brought to me was actually like some of the psycho-emotional work that we're doing, because in fact, being is extremely painful. For yes. Yes. Many yes. Um, yes. And being in a relationship is painful, and uh, and so it's like I suppose you can call them stages, like you said, kind of air quotes, um, yeah. kind of like these different aspects that end up informing each other, and kind of being becomes less painful and more beautiful the more that you kind of move through these things. Yeah, and I would say that the relationship, in particular, between the journey of psycho-emotional healing and the revelation of goodness and virtue and ethics right. is profound. Right. So right. I, talked Zach, I talked to Zach Stein about this and he said that one definition of trauma is that it's something like unprocessed moral information. Yeah. 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 yeah so that's there's something about going through a journey of healing that actually reveals the world to be pregnant with meaning once again. But, but, and this, and this is again. This is where the two come together for me because this is this is to cut against the depths of the Cartesian framework. Because the Cartesian framework basically says, if as long as you use this method, then all truths are available to you. And but before Descartes, you had a long-standing, you know, through the the whole Platonic and Neoplatonic tradition is no, no. 
you have to go through fundamental transformations in order for certain truths to be disclosed to you. And the reverse mm -hmm. is also the case. Certain The disclosure of certain truths will afford transformations that are otherwise unavailable to you. And mm -hmm. that, that loop. Uh, mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I, I, what you just said really would sort of send a, a bit of a thrill through me because getting people to where that's not words, but where they, I was doing a town hall for one of my, my course on Buddhism and cognitive science, what was the genesis of the awakening for the meaning crisis. And we were talking about this and my students started to relate instances of where they had realized that. Um, one student said, you know, my dad was saying all this stuff to me when I was in high school, but I didn't get it. And then I, I, I the last couple of years, and then all of a sudden I realized, as, and she said, I was hitting all these really tough spots in my life. And, all, and then I realized, oh, that's what dad was saying. That's mm -hmm. what, right? And she, right? And, and or, or, right, you know, Ivan Illich's famous, uh, sorry, Tolstoy's famous story of Ivan Illich, where Ivan Illich always knew he was going to die the way two plus two equals four. He knew that the way you know that two plus two. But then one day he realized, I'm going to die, right? And the words are exactly the same, but it's a totally different uh, thing. And so, yeah. If I could ask you a question, like, how do you, because this is, this is one of Plato's great problems and the, the great Socratic problem is people can't see that until they go through it, but how do you get them to get to the place where they can go through it in order they can see it? This is another thing that sort of I'm constantly bumping up against, right? Uh, do you know what I mean? That, that, I, think, I think you make it really fun. Oh, say more about that. Say more about that. That's very good. Say that more. Yeah, I mean, you just make it like intrinsically meaningful and fun. I think this is what circling actually got very right, right? It's right. just like addictive and appealing on some kind of fundamental, intangible level. And so, you know, it's just very um, meaningful and satisfying to be in a container with people that you're intimate with right. and just right. to be driving towards something that you at least think is good, whether or not you can yet really touch it with your heart. There's something that's just like, it meets us in a part of our being that is um, absent from almost anywhere else in our culture. Yes, yes, yes. But the idea of being able to transform with your friends, with the friends you didn't even know that you had, wonderful, amazing friends, noble friends, virtuous friends, that in my world, I think is how we like draw people in because everybody's actually longing for that. And the fact that they're addicted okay. to Facebook and Instagram is actually an indication of that distorted. Totally. That's that's, I think that's a beautiful answer and well said. And uh, you get that, you get the, the you get the paradoxical self disclosures where people are simultaneously expressing surprise and then saying, but this is what I was always looking for. Uh, yeah. Kind of thing. Right. <laughs> So, so that, but that brings up the, uh, 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 the corresponding question, and I'm sure you've considered it, which is, and you know, and I talked to Guy about this with respect to circling. Is that intrinsic attract that it, intrinsic attractiveness can also be a catch basin that holds people down, holds mm. them back because mm. they oh, and they just want to stay right in that, and, and it becomes right, it becomes a kind of you know what Trump would call spiritual materialism. They 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 uh, they're enjoying it, right? And so, what what do you do in your ecologies to keep bumping people out of getting stuck when they found things that are wonderful, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, this is this is where the role of the teacher and teacherly authority, I think, is really critical. And so, yeah, exactly. the thing that I love about working with Soryu back in, in Vermont is he'll just 
say no to me. He'll tell me that I'm wrong, that I'm missing it, that I'm stuck. And he right. will kick me out of whatever nest I made for myself. Right. And, and similarly, I think, uh, you know, the context of the planetary crisis that the world is in many different ways on fire metaphorically and yeah. really cutting into the summer. Yeah. Um, we, we can't settle for that. We need to know we can't settle for that. And we as a network should kick people oh. out of their nests. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's very good. I'm sorry, I'm just savoring that. I mean, that, that's brilliant. Um, and I don't mean in a Machiavellian way. I mean, reminding people, like there's a, there's a teacherly authority that comes from reminding people of the reality of the urgency of the metacrisis yeah. that prevents them from settling into any kind of contentedness about what they're yeah. doing. That's yeah. very good. And, That's and it's good, but you also can't leverage that too soon. This is part of what we discovered. Yeah, of course. If you try to like lay that hammer on, they'll just, they'll flame out. And so a lot of what the Willow curriculum also is, is a preparatory curriculum yeah. for the same participating yep. in that system in a way that you can actually achieve classical enlightenment, which is less so, not so much an objective here, not as much an objective. Right. Yeah, this is like the... Also about like the, the particular training that we do with, uh, you know, it, it's pretty structured. You know, we have like, this happens at this time, this happens at this time, this happens at this time. Um, and that actually also helps towards kicking people out of the nest because it's like, you might want to circle all the time. That's too bad because it's time to meditate now. And then it's right. time to Right. Um, so there's a way of just kind of like, whatever it is that you want, like, you'll probably get some of it at some points, but <laughs> your preferences are very low down on the list in terms of what's going to happen. Excellent. I agree with that. That's a great answer, too, because that, that's why I've been strongly arguing uh, for a, like a pedagogical program um, that we, get, we can't let people uh, be, do the smorgasbord. Uh, a dilettante kind of thing, um, because that that is that is just fertile ground for autodidactic echo chambering. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I won't I won't step up on a soapbox talking about what I saw in Boulder and Encinitas and the spiritual culture there. Where um, I mean, Jamie Jamie Wheel talks about this: the kind of like bacteria resistant super egos that form in those contexts of autodidactic like capitalism. Yeah, yeah. select. Okay, I'm gonna. I won't go off on it, but it's, I, th I agree. It's a very real threat. It's a yes. very real threat. And it's, it's extremely appealing, that, that path. To yes, it is. Because, you know, it, it's, it's very, people have been enculturated uh, by, you know, the consumerism and modal confusion uh, to think that that's the way human beings are. They've internalized that as natural. That the, you know, and, and they even get distressed when reality starts to show them that it's not going to, set itself out as a banquet for them. Um, and yeah. yeah, so I think that's very well said. And I agree also with the point you made, Daniel, that, you know, um, that you don't want to, like in the martial arts, you don't, don't want to do the whip dog. You don't, you, don't, you don't put the white belt up against the black belt because uh, that'll just crush them and then, then they won't return um, kind of thing. Um, or you can put them up against a black belt who's, who's a really good teacher and understands, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's right. So, and and so, a pedagogical program addresses both of those concerns in an effective manner. Yeah, and so, and what I see happening in these communities, the ones that I get a sense of that are growing and thriving, 
and reaching out to the world in a helpful manner is that people are moving towards uh, pedagogical programs as, a pool, as opposed to the banquet model of choose from this and choose from that and choose from this and choose from that. Um, so that, that's a very good answer. Although to some extent, the more centers that we have that offer different things, there is a sort of way that that offers the banquet model of like, oh, actually, you're really needing embodiment practices right now. There's going to be there's the center that's like really going to be focusing on that. Right. But I think that's so. Uh, but hopefully that would be not directed by the untutored preferences of the right. person seeking, right. but by somebody exactly. who's got some diagnostic. Pardon me. What did you say, Daniel? Or marketing and the flow of capital. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe it would be good to switch to q and I think we're yep. about 20 minutes left and I haven't looked at the questions, but um, yeah. I don't know if, if you want to. Well, yeah, I, I, think, I just yeah. wanted to thank, thank the two of you. That was wonderful. From oh, yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. I, yeah. I feel so happy. I wish we had many more hours. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, that was a, that was an alive exchange. Uh, and we have a lot of um, questions that are alive in the chat. So I'll, 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 Pick a few and then just unmute yourself and you can ask your question. Uh, then perhaps uh, we can get some shares from Daniel Station and, and John. Um, so, BI, uh, you had a question. You can unmute yourself. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Um, coming, coming to you from the forests of uh, Washington, D.C. I'd say, hey, Daniel, great to see both of you. Um, yeah, my question is about any noticings about how the five practices like flow together. So like going straight from like circling to an ethics practice or any like little anecdotes that would be worth sharing with the group about maybe something that surprised you about how they, how they all fit together. Thanks. So we've been using circling as kind of like, or something sort of like circling as a base practice of like kind of dropping a lot of these other things into it, uh, which has been a lot of fun. Um, Maybe you can speak to like the ethics one, but I'm just thinking of what we were doing yesterday with kind of dropping in, uh, perspective and insight into circling where we were circling and viewing people in particular ways. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say for, for, for me, it was wildly impactful to imagine everyone having angel wings. If I just imagine people as angels, it kind of doesn't do that much. But if I literally am, imagine them having wings, I was like, oh, I'm relating to everyone completely differently now. This mm -hmm. is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the smallest thing. And before that, I was like, okay, I guess I'll try this mm. for, for the sake of, you know, the thing that we're doing. And then I was like, oh, I love you all so much more. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, th I think the, the most important thing, DI, it's good to see you. Nice to see you. That is uh, the most important thing, yes. Uh, <laughs> the most important thing is, is the energy body work or somatic practice embodiment. I think that if you try to do a lot of these practices before you have access to the kind of like, direct phenomenological perception of how they work themselves out in your system, in your body, in your soma, in your energy, um, it's going to, you're not going to get a lot of the important feedback that you would otherwise get. And so um, we started off everybody here with many, with weeks of, of energy body practice and that kind of sensitization before we embarked on the other um, practices. And then, you know, we, I had a certain like ordering, but mostly I, I, um, embraced either people's um, eros and like curiosity for some people or their discomfort and what they were resisting. So those tend to be the two um, teachers that I try to honor 
in somebody's experience when I'm when I'm working with them. And I think they have a kind of intrinsic wisdom in terms of what they're attempting to reveal to us. Um, but start, I think just starting with energy body practice is probably the safest bet in terms of like ordering or some other embodiment practice. I wanted to ask you about that if I can intervene here, because that's a, because uh, uh, for me, I, uh, I think there are good uh, cognitive scientific reasons by why you want to have a mindful movement practice. Why, mm-hmm. why there you're, you want to trigger the, the cerebellum cortex loop in powerful ways in order to get at what you're talking about. And of course, you know, I'm also trained in a, a Taoist tradition in which that's a prevalent form of practice. And do you have movement practices in, in, in that stage where people are doing mindful movement? I've been teaching Tai Chi Chuan for a couple of decades and like there's stuff that people can only realize about themselves and their body when they're moving. Um, that's become sort of also almost axiomatic for me. But uh, if you're not moving around, you're you really, I mean, and this is part of embodied cognition. So do, is there is there a movement component um, in, in your ecology? Um, I would actually love to talk to you at some point more about introducing more Taoist practice and like Taoist movement practice into what we do, because we do have a movement period, but it's self-guided. Uh, and so it's like people choose what they will do. It's an exercise period, but the intention is to like get more into your body, out of your head. Um, well, yeah. And I, I would love to have, some, yeah, I would love to talk to you more about that. Yeah, I, I would say like, you know, Soryu has said that we would preferably sacrifice meditation before we sacrifice exercise in the schedule. Exercise, movement is critical. And, you know, you can't build up this kind of robust yeah. ecology yeah. of participation without exercise. And so like another way of answering your question, B.I., is like sleep well, eat right, be surrounded by good people that you like, walk, be in nature like you're doing right now, move your body. And then we can talk about like all these other pieces uh, on top of that. Well, Sishin, maybe when I, if I come out to do uh, the participant observation, I could teach you your groups in Tai Chi Chuan. Yeah, that would be beautiful, or we can come down to Toronto and chat. <laughs> yeah, there will be opportunities. Yes, great. All right, uh, Katharina and Marco, you had a question about psychedelics. Hello, everyone. It's nice to see you. Um, yes, we were wondering if you, in principle, would consider adding a psychedelic assisted modality in case it became legalized. Um, It seems that for some practitioners at some point on their path, psychedelics might contribute to some of your modalities. For instance, um, increasing the malleability of perception in the service of jhana practice, Um, thinking of 5-MeO-DMT, for example. Um, It might help increase the range, depth, and subtlety of some ways of looking, thereby contributing to emptiness practices, for instance, in Robert Bear's framework, and also for some, it might increase ethical sensibility. So again, saying for some people at some point and whether you would consider it and how that might relate to um, Buddhist precepts or uh, certain ontological commitments that might be there despite all the ontological neutrality. Thanks, Mm. it's good to see you. Yeah, thanks Marco, it's good good to see you. And so, if you're interested in that question, you should look up Marco on the internet because he has written extensively about this. And I think to great effect, I believe that there is definitely a role for psychedelics. 
I think given the kind of murky legal waters, we're not yet, um, uh, the organization is not yet exploring that, but it's certainly something that we're interested in. And I agree they have um, positive, potentially positive um, affordances and uh, huge risks, I think. Uh, and so wanting to integrate them into this kind of ecology, into this kind of space with due diligence and an appropriate amount of respect and humility about how powerful of a tool they are. Um, uh, but yeah, in principle, absolutely. Any thoughts on that, John? Uh, you shouldn't have asked me that. I have a lot of thoughts on that. Uh, but, uh, um, um, and um, yeah, I, I, I'm basically in convergence with uh, what Daniel said. And, um, and when his book comes out, Aiden Lyons is doing some amazing work on this. Uh, one of my upper level courses in cognitive science, uh, they're making use of Aiden's work. He wrote a book called Psychedelic Experience. I, I interviewed him. We had a discussion about voices with uh, voices with Reiki. We're going to do another one. Part of the part of what uh, Aiden says is one of the things we should also be doing is remembering that psychedelic experience, mind disclosing, that's what psychedelic means, is not necessarily uh, dependent on ingesting a substance. There are other ways of inducing psychedelic experiences. Um, and so there are ways in which we can uh, already be exploring some of this terrain. Uh, before legalization. I think legalization will come. I hope that the legalization will come in a way different the way that marijuana has been legalized in Canada. And initially it's medicalized and then it's, and then you have a decision point, right? Well, which, oh, sorry, you, you decriminalize, then you medicalize, and then you decide, and what we've decided is now we're going to try to assimilate it to alcohol and tobacco and it's a recreational drug, right? Mm. And then there's an opportunity that's dramatically lost. Now, I think because of their their because of their potential for significant transformation, um, I do I hope that we could um, uh, play around with the non-substance induced forms of psychedelic experience to get some taste of it, and that we start uh, a more open discussion about um, um, how where we are going to bring this into legalization. Because I think if we, if we go the route, if it goes into the route of commodi being commodified and, and made into recreation, um, we're going to we're, we're going to lose an opportunity. So that's just a, a point I wanted to make uh, that uh, we need. I'm asking, and I'm trying to make a moral obligation argument that these kinds of communities. And so I'm, I'm really welcoming the question. We need to be discussing this now so that we have the potential of being enough of a cultural force that we can direct these towards right, uh, a sapiential spiritual context of use rather than just either a therapeutic or recreational. We've got we've to gotta make that category available in our culture so that it's a possibility for us to go that way. And I, I think this is a very important point. And I think we should be talking about it very seriously right now. Um, I also think that we should require that people have to be licensed to use psychedelics um, the way they have to be licensed to use a car or a gun or right. Uh, why not? It's the same kind of thing. Uh, so I, 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 I'm both opposed to uh, I'm both opposed to prohibition 
and to, you know, as long as you're 18, do what you want kind of thing. Um, I think that's problematic. Um, the evidence for the potential efficacy of psychedelic states to afford transformation in all the ways in which, um, I, I believe, it, it, Herman, or maybe I'm getting your name wrong, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, what was your, wait, uh, I haven't met you. What's your name? The person who asked the question. Marco. Marco, I'm sorry, Marco, I'm misreading. The, the, um, uh, all the ways Marco is uh, talking about, and he's talking about them in a very articulate fashion. I think the evidence for this is mounting, so I do work on the cognitive science of all of this. Um, but I think that, the, that same evidence points to the fact that we should think about psychedelics uh, the way I think about it is like a, a Tai Chi sword. It's really powerful. And when you can get to the place where you're using the sword in Tai Chi, it can bring about transformations you can't bring about when you're doing empty-handed movement. But you don't give a beginner the sword. You just yeah. do not give the beginner a sword. They're going to hurt themselves. They're going to hurt other people. And so I think uh, figuring out where the psychedelics, like we've got to do, we've got to do just more, do more work on this. We've got to keep pursuing the science and we've got to pursue the pedagogy of where, when, how, to what degree. We've got to get people to, to get that kind of teacherly expertise and authority to know, to recommend where, when, how and what degree to do this, um, and um, I don't. I don't think we're doing that, um, and we need to be doing that. And I have a lot more I want to say on this, but I'm going to shut up because that's enough. So I'm tempted to ask another or get someone to ask another question. But is there a meditation exercise that uh, you guys are thinking of closing with? Because we're about uh, nine minutes to the bottom of the hour. Um, well, we have, uh, just a few announcements that would be maybe a minute or two, and then a very short, like two minute meditation to guide us out of this. Um, so I probably we can do one more question and then answer it in some sort of short fashion. Okay. Uh, Tucker, you just got uh, a few plus ones in the chat. If you can unmute yourself and ask your yep. question. Hey everyone. Hey, Daniel. Great to see you. Really enjoying this uh, conversation. Thank you so much for every all the work that everyone is doing on this. I'm curious about the ethics proposition of how do we know what to love, and specifically, it uh, is implying that there's some things that we actively should not love, or choose not to love. And I'm curious about how that perhaps relative truth interplays with the absolute truth that mystics have uh, been speaking about for centuries, which is that. Um, on the absolute level, everything is perfect and everything is already actually in complete, perfect harmony. And so how do you harmonize, I guess, like the relative truths of human and humans and our existential challenges and then the absolute truth of uh, enlightenment? Cool. So, so very quick, uh, three minute question. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think, you know, Tucker, maybe we can have like an hour and a half conversation sometime to explore that really deeply. Um, uh, but yes, in fact, the question, what is worth loving, does imply that some things are not worth loving. And that's part of what we're coming out of, is our own you know, being or enabling the deception that's perpetrated in our culture and in our own minds, that it's worth loving things that aren't actually singing out clearly to our hearts and our souls. And so how do we deconstruct that, let that go, and actually come into a living relationship with that which is worth loving? And a lot of the practices are designed to help us sort of 
sense that in relationship and our energy body, like by un- removing the blockages in our psyche, often the things that are most worth loving are buried beneath layers of trauma. And we go down into the depths and we recover that which is actually worth living our lives according to. Um, and so there is, in, in fact, and I'm glad that you named it, a value hierarchy. There is a, a realm of values and we ought to get into relationship with it and we ought to um, endeavor to perceive it more and more clearly and live according to it. Uh, goodness is good. Generosity is good. Sacrifice is beautiful. Beauty is good. You know, all of these things are, are, are meaningful and I think I would say real in a sense. We can talk about what kind of real, given the other part of the question around um, absolute enlightenment. And I think Rob Berbea in particular has been incredibly inspiring to me in terms of constructing a kind of metaphysics, ontology, and epistemology that allows for both the depth of the unfabricated and the deathless and awakening, as well as uh, creating space for values and meaningfulness and beauty in the sacred. Um, and so I, I'm very, 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 very deeply inspired by him. Yeah, thanks, Tucker. Uh, so should we make some announcements? Yeah, I think this is probably a good time for that. I will make my announcement first and then I'll take it. Sure. Okay, I have one announcement, which is that we don't know yet when we're going to do it, but it's quite likely that we'll run another three-month intensive uh, modeled after the Willow one that we're, you know, eight weeks through in San Francisco Bay Area next year. And so I'm going to drop the interest form into the chat. And whether you imagine yourself applying or you just want to be updated about it as we plan it, um, please sign up for, drop your email in there. And um, uh, yeah, that's going to be happening hopefully like towards the end of next year. That's it. Thanks, everybody. This is really fun. Really appreciate it all. Did you want to have any uh, meditation to close us out? Or, um, oh, yeah. That was just me signing off. Station's going to go. And then oh, she yeah. took it to a meditation thing, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. So I think first off, just thank you. Uh, thank you, Peter, for you know holding this space for this discussion. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, thank you, John and Daniel, for having this really beautiful discussion. Um, and I saw in the chat, there were a bunch of questions uh, about how do you kind of do these practices or how do you participate in this ecology if you're not uh, actually part of a pedagogy or you're not living in these communities. Uh, so good news. Uh, we have a bunch of things coming up. Um, and I know there were also a bunch of questions that we didn't get to answer, which we actually may get to over the next week or month or months. Um, so a couple of things that are coming up uh, on October 12th, which is uh, Tuesday, we're starting, we're going to open up our Zendo, which is our meditation room online for people to join us for our morning practice. So we chant for 30 minutes and then meditate for an hour. Um, and we can offer all the materials for like what the chants are and what they mean and how to do them. Uh, so if you're interested in signing up for that, uh, it's a six day challenge. Uh, there's links in the chat right now. Um, and then at the end of that challenge, Peter is going to be visiting us in person for a few days. Uh, so he will be here in the in-person Zendo with us and uh, we'll be doing kind of a mini retreat with him with all of our practices. And at the end of that, we'll be streaming on the STOA for 
I don't know if it'll be an hour or 90 minutes, but um, it will be a discussion on what his experience has been like. And that is on the 17th, October 17th. And then in addition to that, um, we've launched two month long online courses, uh, which are kind of the beginning of trying to, uh, at least at Willow, to take these practices and kind of offer them online. There is, you know, there's a certain amount that you can, there's a certain amount that you can do online, there's a certain amount that you can only do in person, but we want to kind of offer as much as we can. And so we have, if you're interested in this particular model and these particular practices, we have uh, what's called Intro to Harmonization, A New Ecology of Practices, which is a four-week course uh, starting on October 19th. And so that will be an introduction to all of these practices and how they uh, kind of high level and how they all fit together. And then on October 22nd, we're starting a four-week course on the Jade Meditation Method, which is one of the primary methods that we use at the Monastic Academy. Um, it's really, really beautiful. Um, I've spent you know over a thousand hours just on that method. Uh, and I personally really love it. A lot of people really love it. And if you're interested in kind of really diving deep into the meditation side of things, I would highly recommend that one. Uh, and let's see, and in the new year, we don't have um, things about this online yet, but in the new year, we will be offering online circling cohorts and kind of more month, more of these month-long courses. So if you're interested, um, I recommend joining our mailing list and perhaps Cheryl or Nathan, if one of you could just jump up to the computer and put the link for our mailing list, that would be wonderful. Thank you. And with that, I will pass it off to Lizendo and Cheryl will guide us in an outro meditation. Can I just say one thing, one quick announcement? Mm -hmm. I, I just wanted to uh, uh, say something for uh, that we all be interested. Uh, Taylor's here, uh, Taylor Barrett. I just wanted to say hi to him and hi, call Taylor. out to him uh, because he is uh, also uh, one of the people that was uh, deeply uh, important to the, the circling community that we all belong to. And uh, yeah. I'm on, doing ongoing conversations with Taylor. I just wanted to call out uh, and so people could just maybe Taylor can just say hi before we close off. <laughs> yeah. So for those who don't know, it was John and me and Peter and Taylor and a couple of other people in this like really beautiful circling group together. So it's really nice to see you all again. Okay. Cheryl, do you feel ready to take it away? Great. Yeah. So I'm going to take everyone through a two minute meditation just to begin to integrate as we step out into the rest of our days, likely into our work, into our lives. So I invite us all to close our eyes if you feel comfortable. Sense into your posture. what's happening in your body. Where is the energy? Where do you feel the most aliveness in your body? Often when we're in Zoom calls, our heads are what shows up in the windows. There's likely a lot of energy in your head. And I invite you to visualize 
bringing that energy down through your neck, into your heart, further down into your arms, your hands, your solar plexus, your belly, down your legs and all the way down to your feet. And trust that as this energy is passing through your body, what matters to you will stay and what you need to let go of will fall away. 